Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. We're a church in the great city of San Francisco, and our heart is that everyone would experience true sanctuary in Jesus. We're currently in a series called Just Jesus, where we're walking through the Gospel of Mark so that in this time of deconstruction and disappointment, we can simply get our eyes on this person of Jesus. Just a quick note, our teaching often does include a decent amount of discussion and community response, and we do intentionally edit that out in order to preserve confidentiality and the Sunday experience. So you'll likely not hear the full content or context of the teaching, but still, our hope is that this will encourage you and equip you. And really, we're just so honored that you would listen in. Here it is. All right, so now back to this. We are in our Just Jesus series, and we're, uh, we stopped in the middle of chapter 9. Um, I think, Billy, you gave the last um, uh, a Just Jesus talk. So we're going, marching verse by verse to the book of Mark. We've kind of been there for a couple of years now, and we've still got a little bit of ways to go. We're about two-thirds through, and uh, we're, you know, we take breaks and do different things, but we're, we're, we're marching through, and we're going to be spending the season of Lent uh, going through just Jesus. And it's kind of appropriate. If you look at what, where we're heading, there's some tough talks ahead. <laughs> you know, there's some, Jesus is going to get deep here. He's, he's on the road to Jerusalem. We're going to end Lent on Palm Sunday, actually reading the passage of him entering into Jerusalem. Things are getting a little bit more close to the end of his life, you know, and so he's not pulling any punches at this time. So I think it is an appropriate Lent passage for us. Uh, you know, we don't formally celebrate Lent or like do a lot, go through the motions, but I do love the church calendar, how you can kind of walk through these seasons and it helps make sure you get everything. So Lent has been about uh, repentance, a call to God, consecration of ourselves. It's not about necessarily just giving up sweets. It's about actually saying no to good things so we can say yes to the ultimate thing. We want to lean into that. Um, so we will be in um, Mark through this. Um, now, I told you we're going to get into some tough teachings. One of the things about expositional teaching, marching verse by verse by verse, it forces you to not ignore certain texts that it's easier to ignore if you are just picking stories you want to. Uh, when you look at the whole of Scripture, you get the whole counsel of God. Sometimes Jesus con- comforts our hearts, doesn't he? Sometimes like we read stories of Jesus and we're like actually full of awe and terror and fear of like, oh man, what kind of God are we dealing with here? Um, and then sometimes we read it and he will anger us or confront us. Um, and that's what's going to happen today, I think. Uh, uh, it's one of these texts where um, well, we believe the power, the word of God. Sorry, we believe the word of God. And actually, ultimately, who he points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. Has the power to change us. By definition, that means it has to have the power to confront us. So we're going to look at that today. So what we're talking about is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Whatever I say in the next 30 minutes on this topic is going to be inadequate. There's so many potholes, so many nuances. This is, there's theological questions, there's practical questions, there's personal questions, there's pastoral questions. So um, we're small enough, we can have some Q&A and dialogue and and I am not the expert here. There are people that base their entire academic careers out of this passage. Um, and I'll recommend a few resources in a second. But let's read it. Uh, Mark 10, 
verses 1 through 12. I will say that we did skip one passage in Mark. We'll come back to it next week at the end of Mark 9. But I just thought heading into Valentine's Day, let's just talk about some marriage. So happy Valentine's Day for you. Um, all right, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read out of the NIV. Does someone have it in the book? No one's, no one's using our pew Bible, so I don't have to call it the page number. You should be able to find it, but it'll be on your screen. All right, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So that's our teaching text for today. <laughs> um, you know, we normally break into groups. I think we're small enough. Let's just, why don't we take 30 seconds, look through the passage again, and we won't break into groups. We'll just have some Q&A or dialogue right now. We, we ask these questions. What does this say about God? What does this say about people? You can also just, if there's something that stands out or a question you have about this, we'll do that. Take about 30 seconds. Dear Jesus, we just ask for your help. <laughs> We ask that you speak to us through this passage. God, show us the beauty. Show us your design. But we really pray, as we come to a topic like this, there's so many people that have, all of us, bring different things to the table. We just pray, God, would your grace abound in this topic, Jesus. We just, help, we just ask for your help. Amen. Two places in the law. Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24 that addresses this. Uh, the Pharisees bring out Deuteronomy 24, which we'll get to. Exodus 21 is not addressed by Jesus in this passage. Um, but Exodus 21 talks about arranged marriage, a, a father or parents um, arranging a marriage for their son, and if the son decides to discard the wife, uh, what to do. And it actually, just as we already talked about, radical protections for the woman in that scenario. And then we'll get to Deuteronomy 24 because it, it's, it's what the Pharisees quote here. Um, but yeah, that's, there's not a lot in the law. There's only two places that really we're aware of. Here, hence the debate that Jesus enters into uh, here. So, well, cool. Well, we'll, get, we'll go through it. Um, first of all, next slide. Uh, this is 
a picture, the first picture of Kelsey and I about 15 years ago, right in the middle. Yes? I'm in the purple there. Um, I had hair, more hair back then, but it was. Uh, you can see I got a little mohawk going on. Uh, uh, yeah, we were, we were youth camp counselors, uh, and, uh, and, and the youth camp counselors ended up sparking, have an interest for each other. And so this was a whipped cream, or it was a shaving cream fight with, for all of the kids that we participated in, and our hands may have locked while we were fighting. I don't know. <laughs> three, year, three years later, next slide. This happened. We got married. That was about 12 and a half years ago. Uh, and so we've been at this 12 and a half years. I'm going to bring some personal experience to this talk as well. But marriage, as you know, is a dynamic thing. I think we had probably our most intense worst fight, uh, worst fight in December, just a few months ago. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I think just know this is a, a living dynamic thing. Marriage is complicated. It's, it's mysterious. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But it, uh, it's also very, uh, yeah, very, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not what you see in the Hollywood movies all the time, is it? And so I think you guys are, are newly, are most newly wed uh, in the room. Uh, so hopefully this talk is helpful to you as well. But just if you do want some more re resources on this topic in particular, um, David Instone Brewer has been recommended to me. I have not actually read this book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, but lots of people that I respect recommended this book, and I've heard their summaries of it. And then there's two, he is hosted on uh, a couple episodes at the Naked, Bod the Naked Bible podcast. Um, so if you want to go deeper from someone who actually is like really studied the Greek and got, you know, all the through that, there, there's your, their context there. Um, just to add some three-dimensionality to the text that we read, uh, just so that we're, you know, it's not flat, so we know kind of what's going on. And then we'll dive into it. When Jesus, I mentioned Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He was in the kind of the outskirts. He was in the Decapolis and areas where, you know, outside of actually Israel. He went kind of to get away from the crowds. But now, it says in Matthew, he turned his, his, his eyes like flint towards Jerusalem. And he's heading. And he's actually entering back into Israel. He's entering back into the rule of Herod. Herod is on the throne in this area. And do you guys remember what happened with Herod in chapter 6? Herod had someone beheaded, John the Baptist beheaded. Why did he have him beheaded? Because John the Baptist had called out Herod's marriage as illegitimate. Herod had decided to marry his brother's wife, Herodias. His brother's wife actually issued a divorce to make the marriage happen. John the Baptist said, you may be sitting on the throne of Israel, but you're not the king of Israel. That is not legitimate. And he called him to repentance, and that got him beheaded. We will learn in chapter 3 of Mark that uh, as early as chapter 3, it says the, the Pharisees uh, went out and began to plot against Jesus about how they might want to kill him because they were so upset by what he was teaching. And it actually says in chapter 3, they plotted with the Herodians to do that. So we have Jesus entering back into Israel. The Pharisees hate him, and they thought, oh, 
what a trap to lay for Jesus. If Jesus enters into this debate, maybe he'll get beheaded as well. Simultaneously, there was a raging debate in that day. It's not a debate that we're having necessarily right now, but between two rabbis, ooh, almost, um, Hillel and Shammai, the school of Hillel and Shammai. You may have heard these before. Jesus weighs in on a few different debates between these school of rabbis. This is one of them. And Shammai was a little bit more conservative. And um, basically, he, his position on divorce was that it really, if you go back and look at the law of Moses and everything, divorce was really only for cases of adultery, cases of you know, impropriety, impropriety or you know, when the marriage vows have been broken. Um, but the, there's another school of thought, the school of Hillel. He was a little more, you might say, progressive or liberal on this. And, um, and, and if you go back to Deuteronomy, it's, which allows for divorce, the, the, the divorce certificate that um, the Pharisees uh, uh, represent for something indecent. That's kind of the word, and the, there's a big debate. What does that mean? Well, Hillel interpreted it to mean basically anything, any indecency, and he proposed what's called a no-cause or any-cause divorce. And as a result, um, actually, he's even quoted here, I'll say this. Hillel says, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. So even if he overcooked dinner, that was grounds for a divorce. One of his disciples, Hillel's disciples, is quoted as saying, you may divorce, quote, if he found one fairer or more beautiful than she. And so surprise, surprise, in that age, who did most people side with in a patriarchal society? Hillel. Hillel was the, the, the dominant force. And so that's the background, the cultural background, that Jesus is stepping into this debate. And he doesn't really pull any punches. And to Kirsten, your point, he comes down pretty heavily on the side of protecting women in a culture where this women would have been treated basically like property to, 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 to cast off and get rid of, and there would be huge ramifications for their life after, what is it? Jesus sides with Shammai, a life-giving, beautiful covenant. So that's the background. It gives you, but, but what the Pharisees were trying to do, we can tell, I mean, the text tells us they were trying to trap him. They were trying to test him. They were trying to get him killed. And they were, saying, they were thinking that one thing he might say in this debate might actually do it. So it gives a, we still want to wrestle with the text, but just it adds some three-dimensionality to what's going on there, doesn't it? So um, just to get right into it, this, the, the, <laughs> the topic of divorce and remarriage in the church actually hasn't had a widespread um, unity of opinion of exactly how to interpret these verses. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 19, Paul weighs into the bait, debate in 1 Corinthians 7, um, and then there's a couple of passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy that I talked about. But by and large, there's four views. I think I can categorize it that way. Is that the church has, at large, has had about divorce and remarriage. Um, and, and these are the views. First one is basically, if you get divorced, remarriage is not permissible. Um, and so I'm going to list them from kind of like most conservative to, to you know, you, you, you'll get it. Not, not permissible at all, even if you're at fault, even if you're not at fault, um, you know, you can divorce in cases of adultery. It doesn't say it here, but Jesus says it in Matthew 19, um, that that is one case. But basically, if you get divorced, even if you're not at fault, one position is that you must bear the pain of your betrayal 
with a joy that serves as a signpost to the resources available in Christ and the joy and the kind of life that's available in and possible is in the kingdom. And that, this is actually the view the Catholic Church has held. Uh, number two is divorce and remarriage is permissible, but only in cases of adultery. Again, I mentioned Jesus says, kind of gives that, that, that exception in Matthew 19, even though remarriage isn't directly addressed in that. Um, but the, the theory is that adultery actually tears that one flesh union that Billy talked about, that act, adult, the act of adultery actually invalidates that covenant and therefore, since that marriage is no longer legitimate, remarriage would be possible. Point number, or position number three, divorce and remarriage not only is permissible, not only for adultery, but actually other sins as well. And you think, where do we get that? Jesus says only in Matthew 19, except in the case of adultery. Well, Paul weighs in in 1 Corinthians 7, seemingly referring to Exodus 21 and and it seems like he includes abandonment in that. So if, if you've been abandoned by a spouse, uh, uh, most would argue by extension abuse would fall into that as well. And so uh, there are some in the church that would say divorce and remarriage is permissible, not only in cases of adultery, but there's some other circumstances as well. And then a fourth position would be uh, remarriage is permissible under the grace of God. That all divorce is a byproduct of sin, of hard-heartedness, we'll learn about in a second. But God that forgives sin, hallelujah, he's paid the price. And you'll face some consequences, some natural consequences of that sin, of divorce. Um, and you're going to have to work through those. But God is compassionate and gracious. And if you've done the really, really, really hard work of repenting and reconciliation and you've pursued that again with and your ex-spouse still wouldn't have it still wanted to leave then you'd be free to remarry now we don't have an official position on which of those four we fall into i just wanted to kind of bring them to you you can do your research and when we can we can talk and debate but in all cases the common theme is that re deep repentance and an attempt at reconciliation at minimum is needed. And we're talking probably months, if not years, maybe decades, like just long time, like gut-wrenching, like trying and pursuing reconciliation. Um, and if, if, if that doesn't happen, if, if, if there isn't that soft-heartedness, that repentance, that turning to God, um, and, and you remarry, I mean, according to Jesus, it's still adultery. It's still that, 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 one, that original marriage is still valid. Um, so what doesn't qualify for divorce, we're not happy. We don't have common goals anymore or values anymore. They aren't a believer. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. That's not grounds for divorce. I don't love him anymore. We're not compatible. I'm exhausted. We've grown apart. It's not meant to be. All of that is not grounds for biblical divorce, according to Jesus and Paul and the historical church through ages. How are we doing? There's all sorts of questions here. Well, how do we define impropriety? The word pornea is used there in the Greek. How do we define that? Can someone be abandoned emotionally? What about the remarriage of the guilty party? Not the one that's trying to reconcile, but can, you know, how do we deal with them? How do we know when someone has hardness? How do you know when you've done everything you can to reconcile? What qualifies as neglect? Is it always the victim who calls for the divorce in Scripture? What happens when the perpetrator calls for a break? There's all sorts of questions, right? 
and we don't have time to get into all of this, and it's, it's grounds for much debate. But I think it is important. In the Ma- Matthew account, in Matthew 19.10, after this has happened, the disciples at first have what seems like a humorous response, but it's not actually humorous when you think about it. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. You know? And, and, and yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like, whoa, I don't even want to marry. But you imagine the, the culture that they were brought up in when divorce was very permissible for any reason, uh, people could, your wives could be discarded, and they're like, whoa, if this is the case, if this is what you're teaching, I need to take this seriously. And I think there should be, when we approach a covenantal marriage vow, like this actual like wrestling with this, like this is a big, this is a huge, weighty, beautiful, holy thing that we've got to like really wrestle with, right? I think that should be part of the response. And we all know that in our culture, I mean, I don't know where we come from, backgrounds, and I'm sure all of us in some way, shape, or fashion have been impacted by divorce. And I've got divorce in my family uh, that's impacted us directly. But we know the ugliness of it. We know the pervasiveness of it. We know, and deep in our spirit, like, this this is not how it's supposed to be, right? I mean, we've heard the stats, 50% of all marriages today still end in divorce. There's a one divorce in America every 42 seconds with the sixth highest country divorce rate in the world. Um, those who are divorced actually have a lower life expectancy than their married counterparts. Those who live together before marriage, you say, well, I'm just going to live together before marriage, make sure we're compatible. You actually have a 19% higher likelihood of getting a divorce than those who wait. Uh, 50% of all children in the United States will witness the end of a parent's marriage. Um, and we know that that's, that's just detrimental. Additional 50% of the, that category will see the divorce, the second divorce of their parents. Um, children of divorce are significantly more likely to develop health problems. They have lower grades than their peers. They're twice as likely to drop out of school. of actually the prison inmates incarcerated for long-term sentences grew up in broken homes. And so this is like not something to like be cavalier about. If this is the case, Jesus, maybe we shouldn't even get married at all. I I, I don't think Jesus would actually hold to that view, but I do think there is something in that of like, oh, we need to approach this with a level of fear and trembling and and holding this in high regard. So... (laughs) What is Jesus' view on all this? How does he approach this? Um, Jesus, the Pharisees... <laughs> oh, thank you, Oliver. <laughs> Kelsey! <laughs> Knew we needed some comedic interjection. Um, so you see what, 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 what Jesus does. He asks, well, what did Moses command you? And, and the Pharisees wanted to take it back to Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus actually said, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the, what, what Moses commanded. Moses permitted you to do that, but what did Moses command you? He's like, let's take it back to Genesis 1. Let's take it back to the beginning, the creation. And I think it shows here, Jesus is not so much as anti-divorce as he is pro-marriage. Like, he has this beautiful vision. And so that's what I want to do today. It's actually a good principle. Oftentimes you see Jesus going back to the creation mandate, the the creation narrative. How was this thing originally intended? And so that's what I want to do today. 
Um, if you go back to Genesis 1.27, where Jesus quotes, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. So you see at the very beginning, marriage is about this glorious family of having children, of having this unit together, of bringing together. He continues on. It says, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over, or some translations would say, have dominion over the fish in the seas and the birds of the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours. This is known as a cultural mandate that we're given permission to rule, to have dominion over the over the world, to create culture, to, to tend the garden, to keep it, to protect. We're giving actually a, a job to do, male and female together. And so marriage is about this mission. I remember uh, at the beginning of our marriage listening to a, a Francis Chan talk about, she's like, make your marriage about mission. Don't make your marriage about yourselves. Like God has called you to your spouse to do something you can't do apart, you know, that you can do together. And those of you who know, Tim plus Kelsey is way greater than Tim alone, right? <laughs> like, she helps me tremendously around my edges, and we all have different, and, and the idea is, like, if you get, get married and, like, actually do God's will even better together than you are apart, it's a great reason to get married. Marriage is about mission together. If you go to the next chapter, Genesis 12, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And before you get upset about the word helper. That's actually the word that God uses for himself as the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. And it speaks not so much as like something you don't want to do so you get help. It's something you can't do and you need help. God created a helper. It's actually a war term. It's like, help, I need, I need defense. I need help. That's what marriage is. It's like this partnership and friendship together. Beautiful together. Verse 20, so man... So the man gave names to all the livestock, the bird and the sea and all the wild animals. Again, you see them working together to, to tend to the garden, to tend to creation. They have a job to do together. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, and she was take, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And so you can see this picture of marriage is also this passion and connection together, this poetry that emerges from Adam as he sees this helper that God made for him. N.T. Wright says, the bond of husband and wife creates not merely a partnership or a working agreement, but a new entity, a new human being. It's kind of what you said, Billy. This beautiful thing. And this is why I think marriage has to be built on this covenant, not like a contractual agreement with prenups and all predisposed, but the covenants of richer and poorer and sickness and in health till death 
do us part. It's this forever promise. It's the only container in which allows us to like truly give ourselves to the other. The only container strong enough for this beautiful thing called sex, right? Um, when when, when this, this explosive, beautiful, mysterious thing called sex that outs, you know, is meant to like serve the other, is meant to be other-focused. Otherwise, it turns in on itself, becomes egotistical, it becomes about us, it becomes about serving us, ourselves. And it's, it's this agent for like this visceral heartbreak, this visceral tearing apart, this pain and trauma and even abuse. But within this beautiful, life-giving, forever covenant, it can fly, right? Because there's a beautiful image we see in Genesis. Man and woman, faithful covenant. Then we turn a few chapters into Deuteronomy 24. A few books later in the Bible. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends it from her house, or if she dies, or if he dies, then the first husband, the one who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord, the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What the heck happened? <laughs> between Genesis 1 and Deuteronomy 24. I mean, this is like a Judge Judy episode, right? Like, what is going on? If you're married, you know exactly what happened, right? It's like one sinner plus another sinner in marriage does not equal happily ever after, despite what some of us who grew up in purity culture, like we're told, marriage is not salvation. Like, marriage doesn't doesn't equate to happily ever after. So quick background on this, 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 this Deuteronomy 24, which is very perplexing when you read it. And you're like, what is going on? We've already talked about it a little bit. In this culture, Israel was actually the only culture that had a marriage certificate, uh, sorry, a divorce certificate. Every other culture around at that point didn't have a divorce certificate as a concept. And again, this was to protect the woman. Because uh, if they were discarded and there was a question over the legality, could they remarry again, they wouldn't be able to be provided for or have protection in that society. And so in, in the, the context, this would have been read of like, oh, even that woman gets a marriage, like a divorce certificate? Even that woman, like, is? And actually there was some research that a divorce certificate, while it did allow the man to, um, you know, to go free and, and that any cause divorce certificate could allow a man to, to divorce, it also did protect the woman because he, he was financially responsible for, for providing for her until she remarried. So this is very confusing. I won't try to dive into all of this, and I don't think it's worth our time or I'm qualified to dive into all of this, but I do think that that is helpful to know in the context. But what I do think I want to kind of end on our time on are three things I think can help us stay in Genesis 1 and not Deuteronomy 24. How can we live into the original intent that God has for marriage? And the first one is this. Jesus' vision 
is far more about compassion, companionate love than passionate love. Passionate love versus companionate love. Now, these terms aren't in Scripture. I'm borrowing them from a social psychologist author named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, you may be familiar with him from his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I love what he writes, but this is from the happiness hypothesis. And he borrows from some doctors and love researchers named Ellen Burshield and Elaine Walster. These terms, passionate versus companionate love. And they define passionate love as this. A wildly emotional state, this is passionate love, a wildly emotional state in which tender and sexual feelings, elation and pain, anxiety and relief, altruism and jealousy coexist in a confusion of feelings. So passionate love is the love that you fall into. It's Valentine's Day. It's the love that you get when Cupid strikes you with an arrow. And you literally what happens in your brain, they do brain scans of people on, in love. And literally, like, the chemical balances are similar to what's happening when you're taking cocaine and heroin at once. You are literally addicted when you're in this period of love. Now, the problem with addiction is that there has to be a come down. You get addicted, and you need more and more. You search for more and more for a diminishing return. And that's exactly what happens when we fall in love. The problem is, as Jonathan Haidt purports um, that we've bought into a modern myth of true love that, oh, don't go to that slide yet, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Uh, a modern myth of, I just want you to pay attention to this. We, we, we bought into a modern myth of true love that revolves around these four beliefs. So modern culture tells us this is what true love is. One, true love is passionate love, we just talked about, that never fades. If you are in true love, you should marry that person. Number three, if love ends, that passionate love ends, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And four, if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever. Jonathan Haidt concludes, he says, if true love is defined as eternal passion, it is, quote, biologically impossible. We are setting ourselves up for failure. There will come a point when Kelsey rolls over in bed and sees me drooling, that thing that was, may have been cute before, no longer cute, welcome, this is me off drugs. You're welcome. That's what happens, right? That's what happens. And so many of us, like we fall in love, or our culture tells us we fall in love and have this passionate love. By the way, that, that, can, only, that can sustain itself for like somewhere between 6 to 12 months there's different, actually what we did, we did it right, because I, I was reading in this, um, if you date long distance, um, you can actually make that go longer, because you have like moments of elation, that drug hit, and then you have periods of withdrawal, and you like live with that suffering, and then you get that drug hit again. Uh, I digress. I didn't need to go there. I'd encourage you to read Jonathan Haidt's stuff, that book, that chapter in uh, Happiness Hypothesis. It's just mind-blowing. He talks about actually marriage being, um, like if you're, if you're familiar with like attachment theory and like psychology, it's actually marriage being like satisfying the attachment that a child has with their mother again. We're searching for that same, and like brain chemistry and psychology, like all that actually happens in that marriage. We're searching for it. There's also a study that shows that 
gosh, I'm going way off track now, that uh, I read a study that, that even the most healthiest, robust marriages can only satisfy 25% of our emotional needs, let alone spiritual needs. So we need something greater than marriage to sustain that. That's a little, um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, so what's the difference between, oh, she's not hurt, not hurt, just scared. We're good. Oh, Hazel. All right. So what's, what is, what is companionate love then? Companionate love in contrast is defined as, quote, the affection we fear, we feel for those with whom our lives are deeply intertwined. Companionate love grows slowly over the years as lovers apply their attachment and caregiving systems, what we just talked about, to each other, and as they begin to rely upon, care for, and trust each other. If the metaphor for passionate love is fire, the metaphor for companionate love is vines growing, intertwined, and gradually binding two people together. So now you can go to this slide. Over the course of a six-month time period, you can see the two... The, the dotted line is passionate love. The, this is straight out of Height's book. The uh, solid line is companionate love. And you can see the danger points. Passionate love is off the charts. But then at some point, like all drug addictions, you, get, you crash. Your body can't sustain the oxytocin and the dopamine hits. But if you stretch out from six months to six decades, next slide, this is what you'll see. Passionate love is still there in, 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 in a little bit of bursts. And it's, but what really has staying power is companionate love. Over 60 years, companionate love has the staying power to continue on. All right, I got to say, like, stereotypical illustration, the notebook, anyone? Last scene in the notebook, you know? The old man, you know, I, f I don't even remember the movie anymore, but serving the one that has dementia and just this beautiful illustration of companionate love over the long haul. All right, so that's first. Second, G for Jesus, the only thing that marriage can't survive is hard-heartedness. In verse 4, he says, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. So for Jesus, marriage could survive arguments. It could survive tragedy. It could survive illness. It can survive having kids, which is the whole thing. Having kids that are special needs. It can survive spouses' interests and personality changing over time. It can even survive an affair if there's a softness of heart and there's repentance and genuine pursuit of reconciliation over time by both parties coming to Jesus. But it cannot survive a heart that is closed off or that has become numb, which by extension is closed off to God. I've um, referenced this before. Uh, Dr. Daniel Gottman's research on divorce and love he was the person that can be with a couple for 15 minutes or even just see a video of them for 15 minutes and with 94% accuracy, uh, he can predict whether that marriage would end in divorce or not 10 years later. 
Um, and he, one of the, his findings, he calls it the four horsemen of apocalypse. If he sees one of these four things in a marriage, and you can even like map it to your facial expressions, then he's like, it's not good. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. The four horsemen of apocalypse. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. In other words, a hard heart. Marriage can't survive that. And I think this is why it's so important for Jesus to be at the center of our marriage because he makes our hearts soft. He makes us come to him. When we're coming to Jesus, we're, we're, we're wanting to serve the other piece. This is the only way marriage really, really works. N.T. Wright has this great quote in his commentary on Mark. He says, this means that for Jesus' comments to make sense, he must be offering a cure for hard-heartedness. If he is now articulating a rigorous return to the standards of Genesis, to God's original intention, he is either being hopelessly idealistic or he believes that the coming of the kingdom will bring about a way for hearts to be softened. He's bringing something. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Ezekiel's prophesying about what's going to happen when the king comes, when Jesus lands on this earth, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Hard hearts can be softened. Sexual sin can be forgiven and healed. Numbness in marriage can be reunited. Affairs can be overcome. Marriages can be re- reconciled. Resurrection is possible. A new heart is promised. And I'll just say this. I don't know where we all are at the room. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. There is hope. There is reconciliation. There is renewal. There is resurrection available for anyone and it's coming to Jesus with a soft heart doing everything in our power that we can to soften our hearts to Jesus and the other person serving that person seeing them seeing the image of Jesus in them remembering the covenant that God made with us and we've made with our spouse and so that points me to the third point for Jesus for third and final point for Jesus Marriage is pointing to something beyond marriage. There's something else going on here. Frank Viola says, In Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible opens up with a woman and a man. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens up with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It opens with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Your Bible is essentially a love story. Where does he get that? Paul says in Ephesians 5, he's writing about marriage. And he starts with marriage, but he ends somewhere else. See if you can catch it. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing, by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in this same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body he who loves his wife loves himself i read this this week and i was reminded of what our pastor when we got married challenged me he's like 
Is your wife, is Kelsey actually becoming more holy, more radiant? Is she cultivating her gifts in the Spirit? Is she becoming more radiant to Jesus because of you or in spite of you in your marriage? And what would it look like if all of our marriages, husbands, I'm speaking to you in the room, all of our marriages, we made it our endeavor to present our brides more radiant, more cultivating the gifts uh, that, that, the, that the Lord has put in them. What would it mean if that would be our ambition daily to lay our lives down, to serve our wives, to present them as holy? After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. And then he quotes the same verse that Jesus quotes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Marriage is a profound mystery, but I am talking not about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage should be a preview. It should be a trailer for the coming attraction. And what would it look like if we lived our lives where people looked in and said, why do you love like that? Why do you serve like that? Oh my goodness, your spouses are becoming more radiant. What is that about? And we say, oh, it's not about this. It's about that. It's about how God came and gave himself up for us, his bride. It's about how God walked us down the aisle. He put a white <laughs> dress on us. He cleaned us up and he exchanged covenant vows with us. And he promised to be with us forever till death do us part, which in Christ will never happen. We're one with him and he's done all of the work for us. This is what marriage is about. And by the way, I know this is all about marriage. This is actually why singleness, though, is held, has been held up in Christianity as a very incredibly... is because marriage isn't the end-all, be-all. Marriage is pointing to something else. Paul says, if I had it my way, I'd rather everyone, no one get married. Do, do all, I'll be like me. I'll be single. Jesus chose to be single. Countless of our church fathers and mothers throughout church history who have had a disproportional outsized impact for the kingdom have been single because there's a union and intimacy that blows away the intimacy of an earthly marriage. Earthly marriage is just a shadow. It's just a glimpse of the covenantal love and union that's possible in Jesus. And in a few chapters, we're going to learn in, in, in Mark uh, 13, I believe, um, Jesus is going to say marriage is temporary. It's not even going to last to eternity. Um, and I talked about how even the healthiest marriages only satisfy about 20% of our emotional needs, let alone our spiritual needs. Marriage is just a picture of the coming attraction. And therefore, we're urged to live in light of that reality. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I want you to picture the marriage illustrations in this chapter. We're going to end here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jesus knows what it's like 
to have an unfaithful bride. He knows what it's like to have grounds for divorce. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they no longer and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, uh, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember sin no more. That is the good news. Jesus. Dear Jesus, thank you, God, that you love us with an unconditional, unbreaking, faithful love, God. Thank you, Jesus, that your love never fails. It will never fail, Father. It has not failed. It is not failing. It will not fail. And God, I just thank you that you are in the business of changing hearts You're in the business of bringing renewal and resurrection, Father. You're in the business of healing relationships, of of reconciling things, Jesus. And so I just pray, God. We just pray for every heart in here. We pray for my heart, God. Would we be captivated by your gospel above and beyond anything else, Jesus? Would we know you in a new and fresh way, Jesus? And God, I just pray... um, if there are unmet desires of how our relationship is going, unmet desires of wanting a relationship and not having one, we just pray, Jesus, in your kindness, meet us there. Speak to that part of our hearts, Jesus, and show us just what you want to do with us. We give this up to you, Jesus. We thank you for, again for your love and your faithfulness to us. We pray for strength in your power, God to allow us to live into that love in our own relationships, Jesus. We love you, and we ask for help. (laughs) Yeah. Help us, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello at sanctuarysf.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father.